Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. When we think of all the great music that came out in 1981, we don't often stop and smell the Stop and Smell the Roses album by Ringo Starr. And that's not to make light of this album. It's potentially something that could have been wonderful, but maybe ended up being a a lost opportunity. The Stop and Smell the Roses album, uh, one of your favourites, Stephen? I have a confession to make. Yes, it is. Okay. I'm I'm here to uh, represent the defence of uh, Stop and Smell the Roses. (laughs) Mostly. Okay, well... This is going to be an interesting hour. Um, But it is, on paper, you'd think, uh, an album with Paul and Linda McCartney and George Harrison and Ronnie Wood and Harry Nielsen, open brackets, and I suppose Stephen Stills, close brackets. On paper, you think, could be very, very good. Um, But it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit out of time, isn't it? I suppose you have to look at it in the context of Ringo's career, where he was, what he was trying to do, what he was trying to revisit. And he was trying to revisit 1973's Ringo album. He, he's he gone mm. back to that formula. And actually, the more that I listen to this, this is not an album that I listen to very much. Uh, I've, I've yeah. listened to it half a dozen times in the last week or so because we're doing this podcast. And the more that I listen to it, the more that I think it's actually very well produced. Some of it sounds great. Mm-hmm. He has fantastic musicians on this. And it's compromised, obviously. It came out in in the context of, you know, the wake of uh, John Lennon's murder. But if you can lift it out of that context, I think it stands up pretty well. It is a coherent kind of record. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, what we'll do is, we'll, in a second, we'll talk about the preamble up to its release and the albums that came before it. But he was trying um, to, to get something coherent out. And it's the album comes out in October 81 in the US, November 81 in the UK. It's 32 minutes long. So this episode is potentially going to be longer than the album itself. But he, he, was, he was trying. He was really trying with this one. This was a very deliberate uh, attempt to relaunch his career. Mm. You know, his career was dead in the water as a musician at this point. Well... Let's trace that a little bit, because as you say, you know, the high watermark of Ringo's career is the Ringo album. And we've done an episode on the Ringo album already, but 
you know, the, the legend is that at the very start of the 70s, the most successful Beatle on the singles chart and the person who's kind of carving his own niche is the one and only Ringo Starr. And he, he doesn't really capitalise on any of this by going on tour or, you know, making himself more well-known. He, he makes a successful follow-up called Goodnight Vienna and those two albums have seven very successful singles. But then it kind of... Um, well, I guess the lifestyle takes over is, is the polite way of saying it. I think that's the problem. He has commented on this many times uh, that he just became a party animal. He was dabbling in music, but he was living a lifestyle rather than being a uh, musician. But there was a formula in 1973 and 1974 which produced those two albums, which produced a raft of top ten singles in the UK and in mm. the US. Uh, increasingly, he was more successful in the US, which I think is the same pattern that developed for John and George, and to an extent, Paul, I suppose. He then abandoned that formula, or, or mm. he, he had less help from his former bandmates, and that formula then was abandoned, and he then starts chasing musical trends, and no one needs a Ringo Starr disco album. Well, the other problem potentially is that once he has... You know, once you own the Ringo album and it's got a bit of John and a bit of George and a bit of Paul on it, uh, yeah, there is a formula to it, but you might not need to own the subsequent albums because, you know, as we've done an episode of Ringo, it's a very, very good album, very enjoyable album, and you definitely still pull it off the shelves for a listen. It's kind of been done. There's a diminishing return. Mm. The initial, you know, the first time you get all four Beatles together on a piece of vinyl, that's exciting. That's a big thing. The next time when you have three Beatles, well, that's interesting, but it's not as interesting and it's not as newsworthy. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. There, There is a diminishing return and the singles are very good. And then there's some filler in between. And so it goes. Um, so Ringo and Goodnight Vienna were his uh, third and fourth albums. The album we're talking about today is Stop and Smell the Roses, his eighth album. So that means there's, uh, let me do the maths, one, two, three albums in between that we should just alight off on. Starting with Ringo's Rotogravure. I really, I mean, why would you call an album that? Uh, it's, it's impossible to pronounce. You know what a rotogravure is, by the way? I don't. It's a technical thing. So that's your department. It's a technical thing. <laughs> it is a type of printing process. It's a bit like a kind of an old school kind of photostat printing process for printing, cheap printing materials. Why this word was on Ringo's um, radar, I don't really know. I, I think... You know, it almost sounds like it's like a like a one of those things a chicken cooks on in a supermarket, but actually, it's a type of printing press. There you go. So, do you think Ringo's Rotisserie would have been a better album title? Yeah, Ringo's Rotisserie would have been a much better album title. Yeah, is it too late to once again take our advice? I think we should. I it's, think um, I think we should just refer to it as Ringo's Rotisserie. It's easier to say. <laughs> So, um. <laughs> Ringo's Rotisserie. Um, and, and, and this, as you say, he started chasing genres. So uh, this is Ringo chasing genres in a way, or at the start of that. Yeah, this is really where it starts. So he's uh, under a new contract with Atlantic. Uh, he's got a new producer. So Richard Perry, who had very successfully helmed the Ringo album on Goodnight Vienna, he's out. And Arif Martin, who was the in-house producer for Atlantic, he is on board. And it's a very different style uh, of production. He's got some help from John, who turns up with a pretty subpar song called Cookin'. 
brackets, in the kitchen of love, <laughs> close brackets. Decent enough song from uh, Paul, Pure Gold. Yep. George doesn't turn up but sends a song, or rather Ringo identifies an old song called I'll Still Love You, and uh, he, he has that on the album. So there's a little bit of Beatle magic dust being sprinkled, but it's just not satisfactory. It's, it's a diminishing return. And Arif Martin at that time was, uh, yeah, he was a, he was a hit maker. He was um, intimately involved with you know the Bee Gees becoming falsetto disco Bee Gees. So he was a very prominent man in the music business. There's no reason to think why he um, he couldn't have furnished a hit for Ringo. Like it wasn't a step down from Richard Perry. He's a very capable producer, and he had a solo album Arif Martin in 1970 called Glass Onion. There you go. Oh, very good. I did not know that. Yeah. See, it's all, it's all connected. He is, he is uh, as you say, the, the producer du jour. Uh, but there just there doesn't seem to be the chemistry there. Mm. And um, although you've got, you know, you've got Dr. John on piano, you've got Peter Frampton, you've got Melissa Manchester, you've got all of these people, but it's just somehow the album is less than the sum of its parts. And this is 1976, so it's maybe worth taking a second to remember that the Beatles all had kind of a, a contract renewal mm. that they were doing. And it doesn't really work out for many of them, except for Smarty Pants Paul, who stays with yes. uh, EMI and negotiates his extra little bit of money. Whereas John stays label free. Ringo goes off to Atlantic and doesn't, you know, doesn't really deliver. George goes into the Dark Horse Warners. That eventually works out, but he has a rocky relationship with them later on in terms of having records turned down. So, it's a double whammy of moving label, moving away from everything that's been working and that he that he knows. Exactly. But it's interesting that, you know, Atlantic want him. So he ends up on Atlantic yeah. in the US and Canada, Polydor for the rest of the world, including the UK. So he is seen as a an artist worth having. You know, they want him because he's got a great track record up to this point. Yeah, yeah. And the album still does have some hits on it, you know, so he's still able to get into the the charts with uh, a dose of rock and roll, which gets to number 26 in the US, and his cover of Hey Baby, which gets to number 74. Have you seen the video for Hey Baby, Ringo's Hey Baby? I have, yes. Mm. It's definitely a thing. It's a thing. It got reviews. (laughs) The album gets to number 28 in America, but it does not chart in the UK. And if you think this is a staggering decline in the UK. Uh, we, yeah. we mentioned this when we talked about the 1975 compilations that blast from your past, which gathers together all of those hit singles, does not chart in the UK. So the UK has effectively turned its back on Ringo Starr and to an extent, George, John isn't on the pitch anymore. And Paul, Paul's still there, but th- this is perhaps indicative of just general trends and shifts in music. And by 1975, 1976, the Beatles were old hat. Mm. But also Ringo isn't in the UK. He's he, he's like, if you're saying the UK have turned its back on him, he, he's in LA. He's not spending a lot of, you, you don't think of him as being UK centric by now. No, he's leading the Playboy international man of mystery lifestyle. And uh, he's separated <laughs> from Maureen at this point, And there are a succession of uh, girlfriends and romances, and he's more in the news for that, I suppose, than than music. Um, but the album does bring Ringo and George together in a very unique and special way, doesn't it? It does. So there's a there's a song called "I'll Still Love You" that George has had kicking around, I think, since about 1970, 71, 
Ringo remembers this song and asks George, can he have it? You know, can he, he record it for the album? George is sort of working out his relationship with uh, Dark Horse, A&M, Warner Brothers. So he's not on the album, but he, he says, that's fine, you can do this. Ringo records the song and then George hears it, hears it and then George hears it and he is not pleased to the extent that he threatens to sue Ringo over the song. <laughs> um, and, but he, he does start an action, doesn't he? he? He does go through the process. He does. So um, it, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how far this got, but certainly legal proceedings are threatened. Lawyers are instructed. And it's difficult to see what grounds George has. You know, what, what, is the, what has Ringo done here? What, what law has been broken? What tort has been committed? <laughs> There's a podcast in that, yeah. It's never really been satisfactorily explained. There is a fantastically awkward interview in 1988 on uh, the Aspel show, which is a UK chat show, on which they both appear. And Ringo at one point says, oh, Georgie threatened to sue me once, but I still love you, Georgie. And George looks mortified. He looks incredibly (laughs) embarrassed. My supposition is that Ringo had a guitar part on this song played by Lon Van Eaton, who was a, a an Apple artist, Derek and Lon Van Eaton. And it's very like George. It's not quite a yes. sound alike, but it's as if he's trying to imply or have people infer that George is actually playing this. And I suspect that that might be the reason that George felt he was being impersonated. Yes. The the Aspel interview in 1988 is quite a unique thing. I remember seeing it as a very young Beetlehead and being very excited that George and Ringo were on a talk show together. It's probably towards the end of Ringo's um, drinking, so he's still quite drunk, flippant in certain parts. <laughs> well, yes. Um, but it's it's well worth seeing from that very odd 88-89 media blitz that George was on. Um, that you have kind of Ringo rock up as well. Um, yeah, I'm sure if you know it, you're familiar with it. If you don't know it, go look it up on, on YouTube. Um, Undeterred, there's another Ringo album coming, which uh, is still on Atlantic. Ringo the Fourth, the following year in 1977, which doesn't have any Beatles at all on it. No, this is a complete change of formula. This is, I suppose it's maybe overstating it to say it's a disco album, but it's basically... Uh, session musicians, no celebrity Beatle-related guests. You have got uh, Bette Midler singing backing vocals, Luther Van Dross. But generally, it's Ringo on his own, Arif Martin producing, and it doesn't chart in the UK, and it gets to <laughs> yeah. 162 in the US on, on, on some charts. That's its highest chart. Robert Criscoe. Uh, the critic, he says, uh, it never got higher than 199, which I'll bet was some statistician paying his respects. <laughs> it's, uh, it also has David Foster on it as well, who goes on to huge success in the 80s with Chicago and loads of stuff. Still a very successful um, producer. But this leads to Atlantic dropping him. Yes. And I like to think that Atlantic dropped him when they read the review in Drowned in Sound. Go on. It says, uh, this disco-flavoured album sees Ringo climb aboard the booty-shaking bandwagon with all the grace of a rhinoceros mounting a swan. (laughs) There was a single, Drowning in the Sea of Love, which I quite like. 
I, I mean, it I has think, a charming video where he's yeah, another charming video. knocking around a discotheque. This is probably the most successful song on it. And Drowned in Sound say, it bubbles into life with the synthesized stabs and a slinky funk bass line before Ringo falls repeatedly on his face like a drunken man trying to climb down from a trampoline. Hmm. I think that's harsh. It's a bit mean. Um, and again, 1977, like only seven years earlier, the Let It Be album is coming out. It's a very precipitous. The Beatles did things very quickly sometimes. Precipitous was exactly the word I was going to use as well. Yeah. <laughs> Undeterred, there is an album the following year, uh, even after Atlantic Drop em, which is the Bad Boy album. I have this album. I, I find this album. Mm. I don't think I've ever listened to it. I, I have no <laughs> recollection of listening to this album whatsoever. But uh, all you really need to know is that it was recorded for tax purposes in Canada and the Bahamas, because that's really, if you're embarking on an artistic endeavor, tax is the mm. tax is the thing. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other albums that were recorded for tax reasons. Uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall was recorded uh, abroad to avoid tax and bankruptcy. There you go. So is this uh, Ringo's The Wall? I think we can say that. It's Ringo's The Wall. <laughs> It's Ringo's The Wall. Um, I I think it got a Record Store Day release in parts of the world last year. Um, If you've never... Oh, no, that was Old Wave, wasn't it? That was Old Wave. Yeah, we we perhaps perhaps touched briefly on Old Wave at some point, but uh, yeah. But Bad Boy, yeah, Bad Boy, yeah, just doesn't really seem to be anywhere. No, it uh, doesn't chart in the UK. It gets to number 129 in the States. And Polydor, this is three consecutive albums have not charted in the UK. They promptly drop him from the label. So that's his career. Oh dear. His, his career is basically over. So as you say, in nine years, from, ni- from, from 1970 to 1979, he's gone from uh, Let It Be, picking up an Oscar, being the most successful Beatle in terms of singles chart success, to being dropped by a label. And we mentioned in our at the start of our 1980 episode that Ringo doesn't have a very comfortable 1979. He becomes very, very ill. He's into hospital in Monte Carlo with peritonitis, which is a recurrence of his childhood illnesses. Um, he is still very much dealing with his alcoholism. Yeah. He does have the famous meet-up with Paul and George, at Eric Clapton's wedding, and they make their boozy appearance together. Thankfully, no recordings exist. Thankfully, no recordings exist. And John also sends uh, Ringo a postcard in May with with a very nice message. This is this turns up in Postcards from the Boys, which is a charming book that Ringo brought out. And yeah, John says, uh, Blondie's Heart of Glass is the type of stuff y'all should do. <laughs> so John's giving him career, and I think, I'm not sure that that's good career advice at this point. Well, I guess what John is getting at is, oh, there's crossover music with, you know, you can be a rock band and be disco and all the rest. I I guess that's the main thing that might be percolating around in his head. In 1979, though, yeah? I was going to say, can you imagine a Ringo Starr cover version of Heart of Glass? No. No. <laughs> no, I can't. But 1979 is also the year of Ringo and Barbara, where they become a couple. Uh, he's filming Caveman at the start of 79, and, and so Ringo and Barbara become an item. Yes, which is a marvellous film. And uh, probably the best <laughs> The best thing about Caveman is that, yeah, it brings Ringo and Barbara back uh, together. Well, it seems to be a marvellous marriage. Let's just put it that way. It seems, yeah, the relationship seems to be rock solid and 
they sort of click straight away. And Barbara Bach talks about this, that, you know, she wasn't really sure who was going to be in the film. And interestingly, Ringo's part was originally offered to Dudley Moore. So, there yeah. you go. <laughs> well, y- you can kind of, it does look like the kind of movie that's been turned down by Dudley Moore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, that's true. It's like, uh, we need a Dudley Moore vehicle. What if he's a caveman? And he, he says no. But Ringo has more bad luck at the end of the year. On the 28th of November, his Hollywood home gets destroyed by fire and possibly a lot of memorabilia and other things get destroyed as well. Yes. And you've seen the news clip of this? I have. It's on YouTube and it's well worth uh it's well worth um, seeking out. And Ringo is, he's kind of bleary-eyed. He, he says, um, he's asked for a quote and he says, uh, the house went on fire. That's exactly what happened, <laughs> which is not wrong. He's not wrong. And at one point, am I right in saying they play It Don't Come Easy over the top of the footage at one point? Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that's an artifact from wherever the original poster got the, the music from. Um, what you also see in the crowd milling around outside Ringo's house is Chevy Chase, which is a very 1979 thing. We are not doing a Saturday Night Live episode. I, I'm just... <laughs> Chevy... No, you don't have... No, no it's that no, another... It's another no. connection between um, uh, the Beatles and Saturday Night Live. Um, what I did like was the news anchor says the, the damage done came to the value of $135,000. And if there was key memorabilia destroyed that day, which we think there was, it's a lot more than $135,000 worth of damage. Yeah, it's interesting that in 1979, that memorabilia may only have been worth $135,000, but in, yeah. you know, two, three years later, it would have been worth millions. So you kind of get to this point where it's a new decade, it's 1980, and the notion is that you know, let, let's do a relaunch. Let's try and figure out how to get Ringo back in front of the, the public uh, consciousness. And we, we got cut to May 1980 and there's a certain Paul McCartney who's got a new album out called McCartney 2. He's high in the charts with his song coming up. And at the Cannes Film Festival, Ringo and Paul meet up in May 1980 and, you know, kick around the idea of would Paul like to be involved in uh, Ringo's next album. And this is the beginning of, well, it's not even called Stop and Smell the Roses at this point, but this is the start of the Stop and Smell the Roses sessions. And it's, as you point out, it's kind of going back to this notion of, okay, what am I best at? Let's have a bit of a reboot. It means I'm going to have to get Paul, George and John involved and Paul is the first man in. And it it might have been nice if Paul had done the whole album, like a Mike McCartney McGear record. Um, but, you know, it's a bit of an interstitial time for Paul as well, isn't it? It is. And I think this is the catalyst. It's been two years since since Bad Boy came out. This seems to be the catalyst that Ringo meets Paul uh, in the middle of May. As you say, Paul is at a point in his career where he's thinking Wings are on the point of dissolution. There's a logic, I suppose, to him thinking, right, well, I could I could get involved in a Ringo project. And he, he signs up for this. So he's going to produce at least some of the tracks and he's going to bring some of the musicians that he's been working with. And bear in mind, he is just about himself to go into the tug of war sessions will follow. So mm-hmm. he's sitting on some good songs. And it's also this point of, you know, the start of the year he's been in jail in Japan, and we all know why, and he is not touring, and he's, in his mind, wings are not necessarily split up, that certainly hasn't been announced, and 
but I think he is trying to weigh up his options. And so for 10 days in July 1980 in Super Bear Studios in France, from the 11th to the 21st, it's Paul and Linda and Ringo in the studio. And Paul has brought some songs, Private Property and Attention. And there's also some members of Wings knocking around. Yeah, so I thought you were going to say this is a good chance for Paul to take a break from Wings. That's a good idea, man. Oh, I've taught you well. So let's take a break right now. End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So Paul and Ringo are in studios in France in July 1980, and the pattern for the Stop and Smell the Roses album will be Ringo taking a week or two out with a buddy and recording some tracks and then taking a little bit of time off and then repeating the process. And this is the first of those processes. And there's there's, there's Wings people involved in this. There's Lawrence Tuber, the famous Wings guitarist. Yes, Lawrence Tuber, uh, going under an alias there. I mean, and what were they thinking, you know? (laughs) And even, 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 even on reissues of the album, they don't bother to correct it to Juber. It's uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, also appearing as Howie Casey, friend of the show, Howie Casey. Yes, Howie Casey is working with Paul at this point. And actually an interesting thing, last year in the summer, an auction house put up a cassette tape of demos, Paul's piano demos of these songs that supposedly had been given to Howie Casey and his wife, Sheila, who also appears on the album doing backing vocals with Glinda. Uh, allegedly this cassette tape uh, that went up for sale, uh, originated with Howie Casey. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, Sheila Casey is down as a background vocalist on um, private property, so that's interesting to remember. The The songs that Paul has on this private property and attention, you got to remember that this is the, the next album he's going to put out is Tug of War. And these kind of have a breezy, shiny poppiness that, that appears on some of the Tug of War tracks. Certainly attention could have appeared on Tug of War, I think. I think attention is just so of that vibe. And one of the biographies that I read uh, of Ringo, because there are several, says that Paul had slated Take It Away as one of the songs that Ringo might do, but then decided that he would keep that for himself. And I think, well, that was probably the right decision, Paul. Absolutely the right decision. Although you could hear Ringo doing Take It Away, I guess. It's that little nod back to the Beatles, you know, famous impresario and Brian Epstein coming. and yep. uh, So, so yeah, it's interesting that that's a song that was perhaps uh, 
slated to be uh, a Ringo track. So, Ten Days gives them four tracks to start the album with Private Property, Attention, a cover of Carl Parkinson's Sure to Fall, and Ringo's own composition, uh, Can't Fight Lightning. The next sessions are in August, um, Devonshire Sound Studio in Hollywood, and among the songs recorded are Nice Way, which is a, a Stephen Stills collaboration. Any thoughts on that? No, my mother always said, if you can't say anything good, say nothing. <laughs> say nothing at all? Fine. Yeah. Um, September, we go to LA's Cherokee Studios in September 1980. Might not be called that anymore. And next pal out of the traps is Ronnie Wood. He's in that other band that I like. So <laughs> he co-writes a song, co-produces a song called Dead Giveaway. On the 23rd of September, they record other songs, Brandy, I Don't Believe You. Interestingly, around this time, George is in L.A. at this point. I think it's the 28th of September. Okay. He's in town to see Monty Python at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm, the famous Monty Python where it is claimed John flew in, but is kind of not yeah. really. That's been debunked, I think. Uh, I, I got a tweet from Eric Idle. I said, did, did this happen? And he tweeted back and just went, no. <laughs> there you go. So I think that's, that's definitive. But old friend of Ringo, Harry Nilsson, uh, turns up and uh, he writes and produces your favourite song, Drumming Is My Madness. Drumming Is My Madness. Now, Drumming Is My Madness years ago used to get played by Danny Baker on the radio in London as this kind of mad song. And out of context, Drumming Is My Madness is... It's it's kind of lovable, but terrible, but great, but nonsense. And um, yeah, it's written by Harry Nilsson and it's got an arrangement by Van Dyke Parks, if I'm yep. saying that right. And, you know, you think, oh man, I'd love to hear a song that Harry Nilsson has written that Van Dyke Parks has arranged that has a beetle on it and it's drumming is my madness. Um, you know, with, with the refrain, watch me now, riz off, which is <laughs> the best bit. And then you hear, you'd love to hear that and then you hear it. Yeah. And then you don't want to hear it again. They also, <laughs> Ringo and Harry also co-write um, the, the, what eventually becomes the title track, uh, Stop and Take the Time to Smell the Roses. Almost, Almost the, title the title track, track. I suppose. Yeah. And then the sessions move on again and there's some inconsistency in the reporting as to where Ringo goes next. Either he goes to New York on the 15th of November to meet John Lennon or he goes to Friar Park on the 19th of November uh, to meet George and then meets John after that. So there is a discrepancy in the timeline here. Keith Badman will say it's the 26th of November. Ringo has said the 15th of November. Okay, so he either meets George first or he meets John first. And what we do know for a fact is that he meets George and spends a week in FP shot on the 19th, the 25th of November. So Friar Park Studio um, is FP shot in George's house. And there are two songs that uh, George gives to Ringo. Uh, one of them is Rack My Brain. And the other one is? All Those Years Ago. All Those Years Ago. Now, sadly, Ringo's November 1980 version of All Those Years Ago never seems to have surfaced. No, although I think from what I read, he did record it. There were several passes mm. of this song. It had different lyrics, obviously. It was in a key that Ringo didn't particularly like. He didn't particularly like the lyrics and he was just generally unhappy with it. So it was abandoned. But this is one of the songs that I think exists. And, you you know, what, what is in the Friar Park vault? 
you know, there's yeah. a lot there, and I think there probably is a, a reasonably finished version of all those years ago in the vault somewhere. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear that. You know, to to hear what the song was like before. It, you know, it becomes a very different song mm. uh, a couple of weeks later. Um, and there's also a cover version of a, a 1950s ballad, You Belong to Me, which is a nice thing. Yes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the origins of that song. I know this song because Bob Dylan recorded a version of it for the Natural Born Killers soundtrack. Which is a very good version, very different mm. from Ringo's version, naturally. You don't say. Um, so then there's the John meeting, which either happens on the back end of meeting uh, George or before he meets George. Um, what, what, irrespective of whether it was before or after, it is definitely the last time that Ringo meets John. Yes, yes, that's right. And John at this point, you know, he's coming to the end of those double fantasy sessions and he has stockpiled some songs and he gives Ringo demos of two songs that uh, he has written for Ringo or that he thinks would be good. The first is Life Begins at 40, and the second is Nobody Told Me. Mm. Yeah, and you think of John in November 1980, Double Fantasy is basically out, but he hasn't stopped recording. He's still hitting the studios for his songs and for um, Yoko's songs, and considering how quiet he had been in the previous five years, um, it's a very fertile time. He's producing an awful lot of music all of a sudden. Um, so Life Begins at 40 is, uh, you can hear it on the 1988 John Lennon Anthology box set. And it's um, it's definitely written with Ringo in mind. Obviously, John had turned 40 in October 1980. It's now November 1980. And Ringo would also have turned 40 in 1980. And they're getting a bit of perspective on life. But Life Begins at 40 is this kind of country hoedown act naturally Ringo, you know, what goes on Ringo, you, you can hear it's written for that type of Ringo. It's very much in that style. You can't imagine this is a song that John would record, you know, himself. This is this is tailor-made for Ringo, I think. And there's a spoken introduction. Yeah, I'd like to welcome you here to the Dakota Country and Western Club and in return for Miss Yoko's wonderful gift, I'd like to, this morning to sing for you a little ditty that occurred to me in the throes of my sleep. It's called... Life begins at 40. And it's, you know, it's interesting. And it'd be interesting to see what Ringo would have done with it. Because there's a Mm -hmm. country-style track on the album, will end up on the album. and It could have been this. And Nobody Told Me, which is a song we all know very well. And again, a bit like Take It Away. It's like a very good song that Ringo almost got his hands on. And you can imagine Ringo singing it because it has this kind of slightly wacky lyric, slightly wacky premise. And, you know, nobody told me there'd be days like these as a very kind of Ringoism type of, oh, here I go. Nobody told me there'd be days. You know, it makes sense as a, as a song to give to Ringo. Absolutely. This is a song I, I still think Ringo could have a go at this. I think, <laughs> you know, this is a song, it, it doesn't have a great range. It's, it, it's not, vocally does not require Caruso or a Paul McCartney. Uh, so I think Ringo could definitely have done this, and it's a fantastic track. Um, and it, it begins, you can go onto YouTube and hear the original version from 1976 called Everybody's Talking, Nobody's Talking, which is is basically the bones of the song. The chorus is kind of not there yet, but the little sort of piano bit between the verse and the chorus is there. It's a, a good demo, and I, I kind of like John's late 70s beatbox demos, which are, you know, just have a very straightforward beatbox behind them. Yeah. And he's putting his songs on top. It's very good. 
But the plan is that there's going to be a studio session on the 14th of January 1981 and Lennon is going to produce the tracks for Ringo's album. So again, this is mimicking the Ringo album from 1973. Um, Ringo said at the time, he and Yoko came to our hotel and we had a great time saying hello again. His head was together, his album was done. We worked it all out that come January, we were going into the studio together. So before Christmas on the 4th of December, uh, Ringo adds some more vocals to a remake of Back Off Boogaloo. And then he flies to the Bahamas to be with Barbara Bach. And after the events of the 8th of December, he flies back to New York uh, to be with Yoko. But December is a month that changes everything. Yes. What is fascinating is that he still keeps the studio date for the 14th of January, 1981. That's when Ringo goes back to the studio and goes back to work. Yes, that that seems very strange. The fact that he must be in the studio thinking, this is the time and the place where I would have been working with John. But yet he keeps, hmm. the, he keeps the date. He keeps the date. He's working with Ronnie Wood. He does about three days in the studio and then some more sessions on the 20th of January uh, to the 12th of February, some intermittent days. And then there's final mixes done in February 1980 and 10 tracks are chosen for the album. Uh, attention, Private Property, You've Got a Nice Way, Wake Up, You Can't Fight Lightning, Rock My Brain, Dead Giveaway, Brandy, You Belong to Me, Stop and Take the Time to Smell the Roses. Uh, so obviously, you know, drumming is my madness is missing, but three of these songs get dropped. Yeah, so Wake Up, Brandy and You Can't Fight Lightning all get dropped. I, I, what I what I will say is Wake Up is a song that it's not a very good song so we can just ignore that um, yeah Brandy is a sort of maudlin song of lost love I suppose shall we say and it opens with the immortal line I'm sitting by the fireplace in my favourite dungarees <laughs> and that's, that it, it just goes downhill from there and I think <laughs> it's probably right that those songs were dropped you can't fight lightning is it's just a very odd song. Uh, I think if you've got drumming, it's clearly Drumming Is My Madness is the song that replaces this, I think, because they're very similar in, in the sense that it's just a groove. It's just a, a title repeated. Ringo clearly likes this song because he re-recorded it in 2017 uh, on the Give More Love album. So mm-hmm. it has some resonance or some meaning for him, but uh, you can hear the original on YouTube and you can hear the re-recorded version as a bonus track on Give More Love. And the plan is that the album is going to come out as Can't Fight Lightning in April 1981 and there's a, a cover shoot done. I think it's done at, is it done at Griffith Observatory in, in, in uh, Los Angeles. Yes, we had, a, we had an, a lucky escape here. So Ringo... Uh, does this photo shoot at Griffith's Observatory. And there is one shot where he is standing in front of a Van de Graaff generator so that you can't really see it, but you can see the electricity um, being generated. Uh, looks as if it's coming out of his ears. And Ringo is so taken with this, he wants this as the cover shot. And he decides to rename the album Ringo Stein. Mm. <laughs> mm, he said. Now, if you, if, you, if, if you would like to see that shot, it is used on a compilation called Starstruck, the best of Ringo Starr Volume 2, which comes out on Rhino, and it is pretty bad. I'm not saying the cover (laughs) we got is pretty good, but it's better than 
Ringo Stein. Um, but the album does not come out in April 1981. He um, has a dispute with the uh, portrait label and their distributor, and he instead signs with RCA and the subsidiary label Boardwalk in the US. But it doesn't matter because April 1981 is a very happy month for Ringo Starr. Very happy month. 27th of April, Ringo and Barbara get married at Marleybone Register Office, the same registry office as used by Paul and Linda, and it's the same registrar, Joseph Jevons, uh, that marries Ringo and Barbara. So that's quite a thing to have on your CV. Yeah, married Paul and Linda and Ringo and Barbara. And George and Olivia are there, and there's a famous photographs taken by Terry O'Neill, who gets £20,000 for a day's work, um, of George, Paul and Ringo and their spouses all together, which... Coming four months after the events of December 1980 is, I guess, a a panacea for the world to have pictures of the three of them together. I think it's a nice thing to see the three of them together uh, after that. Mm. And they have a bit of a jam. So this is a, a threetles jam at the reception uh, with Ringo and Ray Cooper on percussion, which I think means spoons. <laughs> and never one to lose a publicity opportunity. You know, the formation of the Threetles on this day means that Paul announces uh, formally to the world that wings are over. So <laughs> while, the, while the press are all there, heaven forbid he should take, uh, take the light away from Ringo and Barbara's writing. He makes the big announcement that wings are kaput. At least he didn't produce an acetate of his latest single and, and play it. Uh, get the DJ, get the DJ to put it on at the wedding reception. <laughs> yeah, put this on. Um, so in the background, um, the album Can't Fight Lightning is shelved. And so yes. they, they jiggle things around and they don't have to go back into the studio to re-record any extra tracks. They just jiggle them around and off the shelf comes Drumming Is My Madness, Sure To Fall and the reworking of Back Off Boogaloo. And the album gets retitled Stop and Smell the Roses. Um, now, it's probably worth mentioning that in the background, George has gone to the number two in the US charts with All Those Years Ago, which comes out as a single in May 1981. The album Somewhere in England comes out in June 1981. So in terms of the first um, Beatle release in the wake of John's Mm. death, it it goes to George and undeniably all those years ago gets an awful lot of attention and airplay um, because of the circumstances in, in, in how it comes out. And it is a very direct song about what has happened. And I think people kind of latch on to it in that way and they are glad to hear it. So we almost had Can't Fight Lightning as the first word from any of the Beatles uh, after these events, but it, it goes to George. And I, I don't, I wouldn't be so crass to say he capitalised on it, but I just think the world paid attention because of the world it was coming into, so to speak. I think that's right. And what we should also remember is Somewhere in England is the album that Warner Brothers rejected. Yes. So it was due to come out in 1980. Exactly. So when it first was given to the record company, they said, no, no, don't like this. You need to go away. You need to re-record some tracks. You need to change. This is not, we're not going to put this out. And this is what causes it to be delayed. So interestingly, at the same time that Ringo is having these difficulties finding a label, George is similarly struggling or, you know, is having a record rejected and 
that's that's a new thing. I mean, I, I, I know Paul in the past, you know, he wanted a double album version of Red Rose Speedway and the record company said, mm, don't think so. But he, here, both George and Ringo are being told this record isn't coming out unless you change it, which is a completely yeah. new experience. But yeah, it results in all those years ago being the first product post uh, John Lennon's death. And I think you're absolutely right. This is not... If this song had come out in other circumstances, I don't think it would uh, have charted. You know, I remember it mm. being played on Top of the Pops in the UK. I remember the talk being Ringo is on this, Paul is on this, George song. So it was a reunion of sorts, although that side of it was not being overplayed. Stop and Smell the Roses is heading to the shops. And what do you think of the cover of Stop and Smell the Roses? Well, I think the my notes, I think I have written down here, it is shockingly poor. <laughs> now, I, I think it could have been worse. As I go and look at the Griffith Observatory mm. shot and, and, and the compilation album Starstruck, but this is an album designed by John Kosh, and he is an art director, album cover designer, with a fantastic pedigree. He was the creative director of Abbey Road, lots of other Apple um artists as well. He designed Life with the Lions, the box set of the wedding album, Buku of Blues, Ringo the Fourth, King Crimson Red, mm. uh, Yellow, Out of the Blue. Mm. There's two back-to-back favourites. <laughs> and uh, Donovan, Essence to Essence and Live in Japan. Hmm. Part of anybody's, uh, anybody's record collection. <laughs> it is very poor, but I think he's working with Ringo not looking his best. I think the moustache, yes. the slightly Alvin Stardust look, is not uh, doing him any favours. Well, the, the Sergeant Pepper moustache is back, uh, baby. I think what people maybe don't realise is uh, the back cover of Stop, of Stop and Smell the Roses, which is a very sexy cover, Stephen, where Ringo is kind of coyly looking down with an open shirt, dressed as a policeman, holding some flowers. It, it very much reminded me of George Michael's outside video in 1998 when he's dancing around as a sexy policeman. Um, so if you've never looked at the back of Stop and Smell the Roses, stop and smell the cover, have a look at it. It's, uh, it's quite something. So you're, you're saying that Ringo looks like George Michael? I think if you were to uh, show people the back cover of Stop and Smell the Roses and say, who is this person? This person's very famous. You wouldn't necessarily know it's Ringo. It's a very odd um, back cover. No, I think that's true. I mm. think that's true. Yeah. It's Ill- ill-advised, I think, is the word. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you could argue if it would be a better front cover. It wouldn't. Um, the album eventually comes out on October 1981 and uh, Rack My Brain is the lead single and it comes out on the 13th of November in the UK. The album reaches 98 in the US. It does not sell anything in the UK, really. No, not at all. I think there's a statistic or... Um, this may be an apocryphal thing saying that HMB's flagship store, it sold 30 copies during December. A big Christmas rush. Good Lord. So even with all the, the goodwill um, that is existing towards Paul, George and Ringo, to not be able to sell 100 copies in the, in the UK's biggest record store is not a good sign. 
Um, and there is a second single where they released Paul McCartney's Private Property in uh, January 1982 and that fails to chart anywhere and once again history repeats itself and Ringo gets dropped by the label. Yeah, it's, it is surprising. This is a record that has all three Beatles on it. It has Harry Nilsson on it. It has Ronnie Wood on it. Okay, it also has Stephen Stills on it. But, you know, <laughs> it's an impressive roster of talent. And there is that goodwill yeah. that has propelled George's album and George's single uh, into the chart. And it just does not seem to extend to Ringo, which is a shame because if you break this album down, I think track by track, it's not bad. Well, let's look at some of the tracks. We've talked about some of these as, as they've been recorded. Um, Side One opens with Private Property, uh, written and produced by Paul, uh, features Lawrence Tuber, Harry Casey. Um, it's very, it's a very breezy song. Uh, it, it reminds me a bit of, um, we've mentioned this before, there's a, a comedy sketch from the 1980s where, from Spitting Image where puppet Paul McCartney is just writing songs about things he sees. It feels like a very automatic kind of Paul lyric and on PC, you know, she's my private property, talking about his lady, which I bet not great. No trespassing allowed. <laughs> but the second track, Rack My Brain, which is the lead single, Ringo's last US Top 40 hit, written and produced by George. Very classic George. You can imagine George singing this one. You can. And I think this must be one of the songs that George wrote after he had been told by Warner Brothers to go away and come up with, you know, better, poppier, catchier tracks for his own solo album. Because I don't know if you know that album, but he the, the lead off uh, songs, Blood from a Clone. Blood from a Clone, yeah. Where he's just bemoaning the fact that you just want uh, something commercial and you want something poppy. And he, he writes a very catchy poppy song and gives a very sarcastic sour lyric and he does the same thing here you know he the, the peak george lyric is but there's no way i can see coming up with something you'd enjoy more than tv you know that's very george mm. uh, it's got one of george's patented sky rain lyrics but it's it's very nicely put together i i think they did it very fast the backing vocals are pure ELO, particularly the end section. Yes, yep. And I think it po- it points the way uh, to Jeff Lynne. Um, and it has a video. It has a, a, a you know Ringo um, interacting with Frankenstein in a kind of a haunted house type of thing. You know, so he's he's trying to get a hit. He's trying to get a hit. Barbara back in a straight jacket and yep. a brain in a jar. I think the brain in the jar is the literal rack my brain and presumably then the rest. Ringo seems slightly obsessed with Frankenstein. He does. You know, Frankenstein yeah. appears in, in, in earlier videos. He wanted to call the album Ringo Stein. He previously had done Son of Dracula. I don't know. There's a horror motif. He kind of likes, though, the, these old... If you were a, a British kid going to the cinema in the 50s, all these kind of uh, monster movies, cowboy movies, all that kind of stuff is kind of burnt into his psyche, I think. Yeah. So next track is Drumming Is My Madness, which we've already talked about. Um, you know, it is a pity, you know, when you think about Ringo's, um, you know, the modern Ringo that we know that kind of evolves in the 1990s, that Harry Nielsen never got that kind of... You know, he passed away in 1994, so we never got a time to revitalise his act because you could see 
Ringo and Harry in maybe a cleaned up 21st century state being very viable, you know, live act together or Harry Nielsen having, you know, do, touring away Brian Wilson tours in the 21st century. So it's a pity that those two didn't get their act together in time. A Ringo and Harry combo is very appealing. It's very appealing. And there is something now looking back from this remove slightly unsavoury about the the drunken aspect of, you know, the behaviour of Harry Nilsson or Ringo or Keith Moon or, or, or whatever. But, you know, Ringo has come through. It was amusing at the time, I suppose, because of the times that we were living in back then. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think Harry Nilsson, he didn't get the victory lap. Yep, didn't get the victory lap, exactly. Brian Wilson is, is a good comparison. Drumming is My Madness is a very Harry Nilsson <laughs> you know, late Harry Nilsson style of track. You know, it's amusing. It's funny. It's I I quite like it. If you take it in those terms, that it's a, if you think of it as a Harry Nilsson track, mm. I I think if this appeared on a Harry Nilsson album, you know, late seventies Harry Nilsson album, you'd think it was great. It does work better in the course of the album. I have to admit, I'm glad it's on the album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, next track is Attention, which you said is another Paul track and very much a tug-of-war type song. Next up is another visit from Harry Nielsen um, with Ringo, this time the Stop and Take the Time to Smell the Roses. Another track that is worth mentioning for its incredible video. They put a lot into this album, you know, in yeah. terms of video and production and all the rest of it. But this is this is basically one of those insane Ringo Starr videos. Like yes. They're sitting on top of the roof of the Capitol building for uh, the Goodnight Vienna, you know, only you video with Harry Nilsson in his dressing gown. This is like Ringo on a marching band. And it's like a man having a mental breakdown on camera. <laughs> but it is also shot on the grounds of Tittenhurst Park. So if you like your John and Yoko Imagine videos, you're going to love the, you know, uh, yeah. Stop and Take the Time to Smell the Roses video because it literally starts with Ringo appearing in front of the house, the Imagine House, which Ringo now owns and has a studio in, and uh, singing Stop and Smell the Roses and, and wandering around. It also features Barbara again in another comedic role and Ringo drinking poison and falling over, all sorts of great stuff. And yeah, as you say, having a mental breakdown on a runway as he screams at a marching band. That's what you want from a, <laughs> a video, I think. This is another song that I think, I, re- I really like this song. Yeah, because it's again. If this appeared on a Harry Nilsson album, it would. It, everyone would love it. And the only thing I would say is it's very oddly placed. So it's at the end of side one, but it is surely the natural album closer. Because for people that don't know, it's it's just Ringo becoming increasingly tuneless, shouting, <laughs> stop and smell the roses, stop that man in the Porsche, stop at this. And then he says at the end, he's going, I'm going crazy with the record business. I want to stop it. You want me to stop it. Everybody wants me to stop it. And it's as if it's his primal scream. You know, he's... he's uh, <laughs> Ringo's primal scream. Yeah, I guess it is. It It's a bit like uh, always look on the bright side of life. It has a Monty Python vibe. It has a real Monty Python vibe, and it also reminds me of the last track on Ringo, where he starts doing a spoken yes, word. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to thank John and Paul and George, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This should have been the track that ends uh, the album. The album, 
Um, side two opens with Dead Giveaway, one of the Ronnie Wood tracks. Nice groove on that song. You know, it's all right. Nice, nice groove on that. It's got a slight arrow through me keyboard. Yes. And yep. it's a hell of a band. You know, he's got Ronnie Wood, Wilton Belder, Joe Sample. It's these are these are amazing players that he's got the cream of kind of uh, LA session ears here. Um, next up, two covers, You Belong to Me, which, as you said, um, Bob Dylan covered for Natural Born Killers, produced by George and written in 1952. Could I say, when I listen to this, when they get to the middle, <laughs> I just want Paul to be replicating the kazoo oh, yeah. solo or the mouth sax from uh, Your 16. Listen to that song and tell me that that is not exactly what was needed at that point. It's uh, it's a very funny version of the song, but it really needed Paul. And uh, I think he could have uh, reprised his uh, earlier performance. Next track is, uh, again, another cover, Sure to Fall in Love With You, written by Carl Perkins, produced by Paul. And this track sounds gorgeous. This song is lovely. It's a beautiful track. Now, this is actually a song that Paul sang in The Quarrymen uh, back in the day. But this is an amazing track and it's uh, you know more evidence that Ringo should do a country and western album this has got Lloyd Green on pedal steel and he has played with everybody Farron Young Charlie Rich Tommy Wynette Divorce yep. Yep. Birds he was all over Sweethearts of the Rodeo so he's got talent on this album and this is this is probably the best track or my one of my favorite tracks on the album yeah, I'd agree with you there. Then we have um, the Stephen Stills track, Nice Way, or You've Got a Nice Way. Uh, how are you going Yeah, well. <laughs> I, I hate this song. This is, this is you, would, you know this is Stephen Stills because it's got that kind of cod, Latin American, Cuban vibe <laughs> that Stephen Stills does. It's shockingly poor. It's a terrible title, terrible song. I have nothing good uh, to say about this at all. Onwards. And then the final track is uh, this odd Back Off Boogaloo cover, which is got Harry Nielsen produced and is all over it. And to be honest, it's it's Harry Nielsen reproducing that trick he did on his debut album with You Can't Do That. Exactly. So I don't know why. Was this some side of a joke in the studio? And then the record company thought, oh, that's an old song that was a hit. We could repurpose that. It's... You know, Nilsson sings on this. Uh, it's got Keltner on drums, but it does not do anything for me. It loses all the charm of the original. And worst of all, he starts quoting Good Day Sunshine, Baby, yeah. You're a Rich Man, with a little help from my friends. And you can hear Ringo laughing and joking. This was probably a good idea in the studio at the time, but I think fairly inexcusable in the circumstances to to do that. But Ringo will do this in much more effective ways going forward where he quotes from Beatles songs. And, and But I think there's enough distance now in the 21st century for him to be doing that. I think to be doing that in 1981 was not great. It's only there to make the Stephen Stills song seem less... <laughs> less bad. Terrible. And... You know, apart from these videos, Ringo is on a promotional trail. He appears on the Parkinson talk show at the end of 1981 in the UK. He shows the Rack My Brain video and Barbara is a guest alongside him. Jimmy Tarbuck is on the panel and he's talking Ho-ho. about... 
ho ho <laughs> and he's talking about uh, how you know videos are very important these days and 1981 is the year of MTV launching in August 1981 but Ringo's videos don't seem to get a look in on MTV and in 1981 they're showing any old tat on MTV so um, I kind of felt sorry for him but there's one other set of videos which we haven't talked about yet The Cooler The Cooler Amazing. It is an amazing thing. There was no, no expense spared in producing this album. So we, we did talk about The Cooler with uh, Kevin Godley mm-hmm. uh, when he was a very good friend of the show. Friend of the show. When he was on. And th- this is essentially a 10 or 11 minute video, which I think was Paul's idea. Yeah. How shall we dis- describe <laughs> it? A dystopian fantasy where Ringo is in prison, where all the prison guards are very attractive women in rather severe Nazi Germany yep. style. Yep. It's 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 a product of somebody's fevered imagination. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's an MPL production most pointedly, which is interesting. So it's in the MPL vault somewhere and it was shown in the uh, Cannes Film Festival in May 1982 and it is the three Paul songs from the album put into a, an 11-minute narrative of Ringo being locked in solitary confinement and hearing the, the songs, um, you know, private property um, uh, attention and uh, you've got a sure a, a shirt to fall in love with you. Um, what is very notable about it is that, again, we're in this post-December 1980 universe. It is Paul and Ringo on screen together doing a project produced by Paul, directed by Godley and Cream, um, promoting Ringo's album. So five of the ten songs on the album have videos for them. So people are really pushing the boat out here. And The Cooler is the type of thing that for years you would read about and never get to see. But obviously, thanks to the wonders of YouTube, you can now dial it up and have a look at it in all its glory. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. And Kevin Godley spoke kindly of it did he fondly <laughs> he, he sort of uh, my memory is that um, um, drugs might have been enjoyed some dynamite weed might have been behind all of this I think dynamite weed was definitely involved and I think Kevin Godley couldn't really quite remember exactly what had happened uh, <laughs> yes. on, on that set and you know what they say if you can remember the cooler you weren't really there or something That's like exactly that exactly what they say <laughs> the other interesting the fun fact that I discovered Walter Shenson, the producer of A Hard Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night was about to get a theatrical re-release around yep. this time. And they, Paul, or MPL, offered Walter Shenson the cooler as the opening feature okay. for the theatrical release. And Walter Shenson said, no, you're fine. It's all right. We, <laughs> well, can, we can do without that. There is, there is this notion at the time that you know, 81, 82, 83, 84, Paul and Ringo are doing a lot together. So Ringo, by return, is on the Tug of War album. Ringo is very prominent in the Take It Away video, a top 10 hit, which is kind of the flip side of the cooler in a way, you know, so if one is doing a favour to one, one's doing a favour to the other. And Ringo and Paul are in the background coming together to work on um, Give My Regards to Broad Street. So there's a lot of Ringo-Paul activity in 81 to 83, 84. And whether... That is just coincidence that it all came together like that, or whether it's, you know, Paul purposely building bridges or thinking that, well, maybe we can get George involved, or I don't know. I don't know what the logic was, but there's a ton of uh, Ringo and Paul activity at the start of the 80s. There is. So uh, I suppose it starts with George 
inviting Paul to come and uh, do backing vocals on all those years. Hmm. But also at that time, Paul goes to Friar Park with the intention of asking George to play on Wanderlust for Tug of War. Now, that doesn't happen. Yes. But I think there is, in, in the wake of Lennon's death, there is that sort of rapprochement. And I suppose you do have that sense, you know, if somebody passes away, that that the friends come together or they, they're sort of remembering things. And their, their relationship had not been particularly good um, at this point. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a sort of coming together. That does not last. Secret mm. Override uh, yes. comes, comes out. And uh, then that starts to, uh, the, the Paul-Ringo relationship starts to, to get a little bit rocky during uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street. While, while that is happening, Ringo, George, Yoko are taking legal action against Paul. So it sort of tips off the table again. But yeah, I think you're right. There is that period, 81, 82, 83, up to the 83 Dorchester meeting mm. when they are building bridges. And I suspect Paul is the one that's doing that. Yeah, and that, that, that meeting, just to remind ourselves, is December 83, where Paul, Ringo, George and Yoko meet in the Dorchester, find out about Paul's arrangements for his uh, extra top-up on his uh, royalties, and things kind of fall apart again until the kind of resolution of all the Apple EMI Beatle conflicts about 89, which gives us 1990s Beatles and beyond. But 81, 82, 83, there's a lot of interaction between the three of them. And we've the we've things like photographs of Paul in Fire Park and all the rest. Um, but that's the Stop and Smell the Roses album. The, the retrospective reviews have been kind of kind to it. All Music says it's Ringo's strongest and most effervescent album since Goodnight Vienna, containing two good songs by Paul McCartney and one by George Harrison. Um, um, you know, and it's, uh, I think they're right. It is kind of effervescent. As we said at the start, he is trying. It does work coherently. It's definitely worth a listen, you know? Definitely worth a listen. I, I mean, I'm, I'm over-egging my dislike of Stephen Stills, but I genuinely think that that track is the only bad track on it. I think Sure to Fall is top-tier mm. Ringo, country and western, an absolutely gorgeous track. I think the Paul tracks are excellent. George's uh, Rack My Brain is a good track and it suits Ringo and it's a nice performance. So there's a lot to admire in this. And I think if you if you hear the Nilsson tracks, the title track and Drumming Is My Madness, out of context, they yes. sound... Bonkers, bonkers. <laughs> absolutely bonkers, but they work in the context of the album. And, you know, you, you can't get past the fact that it's Ringo Starr, Harry Nilsson, Van Dyke Parks. These are top talent pulling together to, to bring this album together. And it is, a, it is a bit of a mystery to me why it didn't chart more highly and why the videos didn't get more rotation. Because you mm. say MTV, they were playing anything. They were playing anything. If you go back and look at, there's a, there's a list online of the first 24 hours on MTV of the videos they played, because everyone kind of knows, well, Video Killed the Radio Star was the first track, and then the second track was Pat Benatar, and then they're playing, you know, Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, they're playing Split Ends videos, Elvis Costello videos, Pretender videos, they're trying to find a groove of what, like, who, who has made a video in 1981, and if you've made a video in 1981, you should be able to get on MTV, because they're putting all sorts of stuff up there. 
I think the only criteria was in 1981 that you'd made a video and you were white. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, that is true, too. Anyway, he said, with a big anyway, um, the reality is that what happens next for Ringo is he puts out one more album, which is 1982's Old Wave, which is produced by Joe Walsh. And that's an album that's kind of um, another kind of non-charting disappearing act. Yeah, it it doesn't even get a release in the UK or the US. And all you need to know again is the album was originally called It Beats Sleep. Yeah, and that's arguable, you know. Sleep might be preferable. <laughs> it was all very undignified. And uh, I, basically, that was an end of Ringo's recording career. Pretty much. I mean, uh, basically, 1989 is this kind of big restart for Paul and Ringo. Ringo eventually... Uh, alongside Barbara uh, at the end of 1988 in October and November they go into a detox clinic in Arizona and they get a six week treatment for alcoholism which thankfully to the present day seems to have done the trick and in 1989 you kind of have this Paul McCartney reboot and tour with Flowers in the Dirt playing Beatles songs you have Ringo in 1989 rebooting with the All-Star Band and doing quite well with the original All-Star Band and we talked about this in our episode with William about Ringo playing live and uh Eventually, Ringo gets back into a recording studio for 1992's Time Takes Time. And again, this is the template that does work, where there's a couple of named producers and there's a bit of goodwill towards Ringo. And that's kind of how he keeps on making records for the following 30 years, more or less. More or less. And I think it's a very successful. And I I, I like the statistic that Ringo has put out more new music in the 21st century than Paul. (laughs) <laughs> you keep saying it. <laughs> he just works. He just works away in the background and puts out these records. He tours with the All Star Band. He doesn't do any of the songs off the current records with the All Star Band because he knows that's not what people want to hear. And it's a very successful template. And he has, over the course of lockdown, basically said, "I'm not going to be putting out any more albums. I'm going to be putting out EPs." He puts out. You know, he's got his recording studio. He puts out individual songs. It works fantastically well. And some of those songs are great. And what I would say is that all of the albums that Ringo has put out post-1989 always have three or four top-notch Ringo Starr tracks. Mm. And the glory of uh, modern times is that Ringo can broadcast to the people who wants to hear him. So he puts up these videos on YouTube. They get about a million views. They're very charming. They're pretty decent songs. Um, So he's not fighting against trends or fashions or trying to get into the charts. That's not the point. But he can show himself as a, a functioning, happy artist in his studio doing his own thing and fair play to him. I think we should all be happy for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So have we rehabilitated Stop and Smell the Roses a little bit? It's not as bad as it looks. (laughs) And and a bit like yourself, listening to it in preparation for this, this is Dark Horse all over again. I'm like, oh, I see. This is not too bad, actually. (laughs) Uh, it It was a revelation to me. I'm sure it's not a record that I had listened to for five or six years. And I must have listened to it a dozen times in the last month or so. And yeah, I think it's great. I think it's really good and it's well worth exploring. You see, sometimes we surprise ourselves whenever we're deciding what to record an episode on. The notion of stop and smell the roses, I didn't think it'd end up here, really. No, I really didn't think. I really didn't think it would. Advocating for stop and smell the roses. Um, 
But what do you think, everybody? As usual, we want to send you back to the records. Go off and listen to Ringo's Stop and Smell the Roses. It's really quite good. It's 32 minutes long, which is about, you know, (laughs) 75% shorter than this episode. Uh, And it's available on all your regular streaming services. We want to thank you for listening. We're available in all the usual places. Nothingisrealpod.com, the website, at Beatlespot on Twitter, and the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, and all the other ancillary social media things that we are there. And thank you to all our ACAST Plus supporters. We are currently going through through the 16 songs of 1966, along with another tranche of alternate Nothing Is Real episodes existing in that space. Um, But for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.